All right, how many folks here like playing board games? How many of you don't like board games? So I don't like playing board games. I like winning board games, which is a very important distinction, which means that very rarely do I like playing board games. So the board games I like playing are the ones I think I'm going to win. The games that uh, I'm going to lose, I don't like playing. And if I'm going to lose them, here's kind of how I used to handle this. Back when I was in high school, you know, uh, we would, friends from my high school would throw board game parties because we were lame, that's all we did. So like we do those type of parties. And they'd say, board game party over here, and we'd go, and me and my good buddy would go, and we would win every time because we were expert negotiators with the rules. We would uh, manipulate, twist, and kind of figure out a way, and go, well, it's like, you know, like, read between the lines, you know, spirit of the law, letter of the law, all those type of things. And so we would have a great time. Me and my, me and my buddy would go, and we'd, we'd beat everybody, but nobody liked us. And so they stopped inviting us to our board game parties because, because they were losers and they didn't like losing. That's why. <laughs> That's not really what it was. Really, I was just terrible and I thought it was fun to have ex fun at the expense of other people. So that's kind of um, where I came from. But it, even, even more recently, there's, there's, you know, there's winning and then there's losing. And I'm not going to stand here today and say that losing is winning because uh, losing is losing and winning is winning. That's kind of an important thing that we have to keep saying in our culture because nowadays everyone gets participation trophies. But it's important for us as people to be able to call losing losing and call winning winning to call faithful faithful to call faithless uh, faithless. And so even just recently, a couple uh, months ago, I was hanging out with some friends who, uh, I'm not totally sure why they're friends with me, but they are, and we we're hanging out. And I would kind of had a long week, and I was a little bit tired, and we we're trying to figure out what we we're going to do. And they're like, what should we do this? Should we do this? And I'm going like, no, why would we do that? That's dumb. No more dumb ideas, you know? What, what should we eat? Should we eat this? I'm thinking like, I'm not eating that. Stop. And I go, here's what we should do. We should do this. And they're like, nobody wants to do that. And I go, well, we're doing that. That's okay. And so I totally just bulldozed my way into winning, and I got to do what I wanted. And so we went out to eat where I wanted to, we went and saw the movie that I wanted to, and my friends, who I'm, like I said, I'm not totally sure why they're friends with me, um, went with me, and it wasn't until like the next morning, because the whole night I'm thinking like, this is great, we're doing what I wanted, I'm winning, they're losing, and this is a healthy thing. And, but the next morning, it was like the, the real conviction from the Spirit of God sat on me, and kind of helped me see how much of a terrible friend I was and helped me see how you know winning at all costs is not winning and how getting your own way having fun at the expense of other people is not a good thing and so my my default mode is to accomplish and win and you know I had to talk with a couple of my friends and apologize and ask for their forgiveness and then sincerely ask them like yeah but why are you friends with me because I uh I don't treat you that well all the time. And kind of what we see in this passage is the opposite of that. Whereas I think that kind of the triumphant, winner-take-all, uh, upward mobile culture we have, we kind of have a general attitude of, you know, the, the means justify the ends. How I get there is less important than that I get there. Um, winning, you know, I've growing up, if you're not cheating, you're not trying, you know, that, that type of thing, you know, like, how bad do you want it? Bad enough to cheat? Not, you don't want it bad enough. And so that was, that's kind of like our, at least mine, I'm not going to say you're like me, but that's kind of my general default mode is win at all costs and avoid losing. And what we see here in this passage is the exact opposite. And let me show you what that looks like. So here's what happens in this passage. It's, it's not the most positive 
of passages, as you might have gathered already. So far in the book of Acts, we see the Spirit fall and people speak in tongues. Someone preaches, thousands get saved. Cultures are being flipped on their heads. Idolatry is being turned from. The economic structure of cities are being shaped and changed. And there's like this like win after win after win happening and it's this really exciting thing. And then we get to this passage and here's what happens. First, Paul arrives at Jerusalem where the Spirit had been leading him and he shows up and the first thing he hears is, hey Paul, just so you know, everyone here has been gossiping about you and slandering you. You should just be aware of that. They're saying that you don't, you're telling all the Jews to stop acting like Jews. You're telling people to not participate in these like, things that are really important to our culture. And Paul goes, well, that stinks. What do you think I should do? And they go, here's what you should do. You should participate in this Jewish ritual uh, and that'll help build a bridge so they'll connect with you. And Paul goes, sweet, I'll do that. I'll, I'll, I'll jump through the hoop. I'll go through the motion just so that I can build a bridge with these Jews. And then it doesn't work. He, the crowd surrounds him, lays hands on him, it says, drags him. They're going to kill him. But then fortunately, the, the Romans intercede and kind of help him get by. And here's what happens next. Is they give him, okay, well, we'll Paul, we'll give you a chance to, to share why you're doing what you're doing. We'll give you an opportunity to give, to give a defense for yourself. You go, okay, here it goes. Paul's going to preach. They're all going to hear the gospel and lives are going to change. It's really exciting. Paul gets a chance to be a voice. Paul stands up and he offers this compassionate, humble, bridge-building, gracious, confessional message of what God has done in my life and I, what, what I want to see happen in your life. And it doesn't work. <laughs> and you go, hmm, that's kind of the first time we've seen real roadblocks happen. I thought the Spirit's supposed to fall. Maybe Paul's not filled with the Spirit. Maybe there's problems here. And then it ends on a really positive note. They're about to whip Paul because of he's a liar, but they hold off on it because he's a Roman citizen. Not because he's a human. Not because they know he's innocent. Not because any other reason, but they go, we're not going to abuse you because that might go bad for us. And so on the, on the surface here, from a horizontal perspective, it really looks like Paul gets a fat loss. Nobody gets saved. Nobody gets their mind changed. Things don't go well. Paul's still arrested. But what we're going to see in this passage is that losing is really winning when winning would have cost our faithfulness. That even though on the surface it looks like Paul loses, in reality, from God's perspective, from where it really matters, Paul wins. That his fruitless efforts even though they're faith-filled and injected by the Spirit, are preferred by God over certain types of fruit that you get by manipulating and conniving your way into getting your outcome. That rather than the means justifying the end, God is overwhelmingly concerned with the means. Will you be faithful even when it leads to unfavorable outcomes? And we see that here in Paul. That Paul is faithful and outcomes still don't go well for him. And I'm fairly certain that a lot of you in this room, that's kind of where you've been living for a long time. My children still haven't come back to the church. My parents still won't treat me like a human. My coworkers who I've loved and served and shared the gospel with for years still just make fun of me for 
being a superstitious Christian. This physical pain that I thought was going to go away, now it's not like weird anymore. It's just part of my life. It doesn't go away. My hostile coworkers won't knock it off, even though I keep praying. And it looks like horizontally, like you're losing. Like it's a loss. But when God keeps score, it's faithfulness that he judges as winning. And I hope that all of us here, um, as a result of this passage, can see that God controls the outcomes and all we can do is control our inputs. That when we're filled with the Spirit and serve and love in costly ways, we have no real control over the outcome. And here we see an example of Paul who loves and serves and is faithful and is humble and still nothing. I was talking to Dale Thacker, our counseling pastor, and he's like, what's your passage about? I was like, dude, it's kind of a bummer. It's like Paul does everything right and things still go wrong. And he goes, oh, sounds like a good snapshot for everyone's life. (laughs) (laughs) So that's where we're going today. We're going to look at how Paul is faithful and it still goes bad for him and hopefully be encouraged that things might still go bad for you all the time. (laughs) So (laughs) there, there you go. Let's pray and we can dive into this text. God, you're good to us. You meet with us in the middle of our brokenness. I pray that you will remind us of the fact that we follow a suffering servant, one who lays down his life, that we might be called to do the same. Help us see the small ways that we can lay down our lives. Let us not settle to uh, be faithful someday, somewhere, far away, but rather that you can enable us to be faithful in the little things, dying to ourselves bit by bit, here and now, over and over again in the mundane. Amen. Amen. So we're going to see four things that Paul does. He was spiritually obedient, he serves humbly, he speaks lovingly, and he stewards his personal story well. Um, one of the things we see right off the bat is that he's spiritually obedient, Acts twenty twenty two. I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. So Paul is going and is doing exactly what the Spirit called him to do. One of the things I see in connecting with folks and talking with people is that as soon as things start to go wrong, there starts to be this, this self-examination that goes, maybe I'm not supposed to be here. Maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Maybe I should back off. Maybe I should do something else. Maybe I should change my major. Maybe I should go somewhere else. And there's this immediate assumption that maybe I'm not doing what the Spirit wants me to do and that's why things are getting hard. Paul does not have that assumption. Paul, we know, is doing exactly what the Spirit is calling him to do and yet it's still going poorly. So if you're hitting roadblocks in your life and you're frustrated and things aren't necessarily always going really well, I hope you're able to recognize that that does not necessarily mean that you're doing the wrong thing in the wrong place in the wrong time. Very likely, you are doing something like Paul's doing right here, and you're doing what the Spirit has called you to do. You're being faithful. You're serving in costly ways. And God, who controls the outcomes, has just not provided a certain level of fruit yet. Next thing we see in Paul is that he serves humbly. He serves with humility. Look with me in chapter 21, verse 21. Paul shows up on the scene, and he's being slandered by all these people. And it says, And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. This is false. This is an abject lie. This is slander. This is gossip. 
Those of you who have been gossiped about or have been, had rumors spread about you know how powerless this feels. To walk into a space and find out that people have all these opinions about you that aren't based on you. And if I'm Paul, then I'm going, call everybody together. I need to tell them who's liar and who's not liar. But here's what James says to Paul. Paul goes, what do I do? If everybody has, has been slandered about me, how do I serve these people in this context? And James goes, here's what you do. You, you perform this vow. So you go and do this Jewish ritual, Nazarite vow thing that's not against Christianity. It's just kind of a cultural thing. If you go do this cultural practice, that'll help them see that you're really not disavowing Moses, but rather you are avowing Christ. And so Paul, go and, go and jump through this relational hoop. Go and do this vow, and that'll maybe help build a bridge. And so Paul, in response to being absolutely slandered and gossiped about, goes, how can I serve these people and build a bridge so that I can influence them? That is the opposite of the reaction that I would naturally have. Who are the people who are gossiping about me? How can I serve them? How can I build a bridge? How can I gain influence? How can I love them in such a way that might help them not feel the need to be a gossiper anymore? He serves his accusers. See that in 22, 23, he spends these weeks and he spends a lot of money. It's financially costly for him to do this, to participate in one of these vows. You have to make a whole bunch of offerings and things like that. So Paul takes this financially costly way of building relationships with people who are slandering him. You go, out of way. That's going to earn influence, right? Nope, it doesn't work. Doesn't mean it wasn't right. <laughs> it doesn't work. They don't listen. Are you in a position where you're able to or willing to serve the people who are maligning you. It may not work, but that's the way of Christ. That's what Paul does. Next, we see that Paul speaks lovingly. So not only is he obedient to the Spirit, not only does he serve with his finances, but the words out of his mouth are kind. Look at with me in uh, 2138. Actually, we're going to skip that part. Uh, it just says he got slandered. Do you want to read that again? Uh, 22 verses 1 through 5. So Paul has his chance to speak to his accusers after trying to serve them and they don't watch, they don't see. Now he's a chance to speak to them. And he says, hey, you idiots. Oh, that's not what he says. That's not what happens. Liars. No, that's not what he says. He says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense now I make before you. Now that's not the rhetoric that you hear most places when someone's being maligned and slandered. Paul goes and as much as possible tries to say, hey, I'm like you, brothers and fathers. I've stood where you're, where you're standing. I've been where you've been. And he goes in verse 3, I'm a Jew just like you, born in Tarsus and Silica, brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Even here, Paul's not presuming their motive. He's saying, I've been where you are. I've stood in your shoes. I've walked a thousand feet in what you're dealing with. And so rather than distancing himself, pushing people away or slandering him, Paul goes, how can I relate with them? How can I connect with them in such a way that's going to influence them and help them see the risen Lord? Again, the opposite of my fleshly opinion, that if someone is slandering me, I want to slander them to dissuade and discredit their, uh, their reliability as a witness. I'm going to discredit their witness so that I can uh, accredit myself. Paul rather goes, who are the people who need Jesus? How can I build a bridge to be with them so they might listen to what I have to say? 
This is counterintuitive, but this is the way of the cross, the way of serving rather than being served. And lastly, he, he stewards his story, his conversion. He talks about how he uh, saw the light and Jesus saved him. But one of the things he also does in his conversion is he really owns his own sinfulness. He goes, hey, I killed people who were, I persecuted the way. I was a sinner. I needed grace. He takes 100% of the blame for his own brokenness and gives God 100% of the credit for his conversion. One of the ways we try and win artificially is by downplaying or minimizing how sinful or bad we are apart from God. We go, yeah, I was kind of good, and then God helped me be a little more good. I kind of had things together, and then God came into my life and helped me just put a bow on top. But Paul's owning the real depths that apart from God... I was hopeless and lost, but yet with God, in my conversion, he extended me this grace. He called my name, and I ran out of the grave, and now I am here with you. That I've been where you were, and now because of God's work in my life, I'm here. And then he also shares this calling to go to the Gentiles. Read with me 22, verse 21. This is actually what ends up totally setting off the, Gentile, the, the Jews. Um, 22, 21. And he said to me, that is the Lord, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So he's stewarding his story. And the word steward here is important. A steward is one who manages something that belongs to someone else. One of the marks of becoming a more mature Christian is you're able to see the work of God in your life and see the way in which he has intervened See the way in which he has molded you and shaped you and loved you and cared for you. And rather than just keeping that story to yourself as a way of being encouraged personally, you end up using that story to encourage other people. That the word steward or servant or missionary um, or servant, these are all kind of the same original words. And it has to do with taking the role of what God has done in my life and sharing it with other people so they might see God in the way that I now see him. I was a Jew who persecuted the church. I own that. And I'm going to tell you who I was so that you might find, you might be able to identify with who I was so you might not be able to, so you might be able to identify with who God is making me now. A lot of you in this room have real stories of significant pain, abuse, brokenness, difficulty. And there's a level that we're tempted to feel that brokenness and experience that as shame. I should keep it to myself and not tell people what I've done outside the work of God. However, the cross of Christ enables us not to be ashamed of our past, but rather to see the brokenness in our past and see how God has forgiven us and cleansed us of it and then be able to offer it to others as proof, as evidence of the work that God can do in our lives. And I hope that if you're one of those people who has a story of brokenness, of real pain, and you're still carrying it, you're still holding on to it, I hope that you can be softened by the Spirit to a way where you no longer feel ashamed of your past, but you feel empowered by your past because it's evidence of the fact that God can change people. Evidence of the fact that God can redeem the unredeemable situations. That God can take you out of darkness and into light. That God can take victims and enable them to be a blessing to other victims. And that requires work to really 
process through that pain. But I pray that by the Spirit and with the help of this church community, uh, we have counselors who want to help people process through those things. We, we really believe that God will take the pain you've experienced and use it to love and mobilize other people. So Paul does all this right stuff. He's spiritually obedient. He serves humbly. He speaks lovingly. He stewards his story. If I was going to write a book on how to do evangelism and share your faith, I could use Paul's example right here. Like this is, this is the way humility, love, ownership of your past, all the glory to God. He builds bridges. He's led by the Spirit. Loss. (laughs) It doesn't go well. Why doesn't it go well? What what happens? What do we do when we're giving God our best and He's using us and He's leading us and there's still brokenness and there's still pain and people still don't hear the gospel of Jesus. One of the things that Luke does here, which is a really interesting and cool tool, is he shows us a parallel between these Jews and the Greeks we encountered a couple chapters back. If you uh, remember, you might have been with us. If you weren't, here's kind of the short summary. Is Paul, in a similar instance, is in Ephesus and he's telling people about the gospel and there's a riot. People lose their minds. They start going crazy. Here, it's kind of similar. It's so similar, in fact, that Luke uses almost the exact same language to point to you the, uh, the, the way that these people are handling this. So in Acts 21, 34, what, we, what we're looking at right now, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and he could not learn the facts, dot, dot, dot. So these Jews are all riled up, and they kind of, this happens twice. They're all kicked into a frenzy, and there's dust flying, and it's a little insane. But then that's almost the exact same words as what happens about the Greeks. This is a couple of chapters back. Now some cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come. So Luke in his telling of Acts is really showing us an important thing. It's that fundamentalists exist in every camp. And by fundamentalist, I mean someone who denies information or overlooks facts for the sake of preserving their conclusions. Someone who dismisses evidence so they can go on believing what they already believe. Fundamentalism. There are these Greeks over here who are going, we serve Artemis, we serve Artemis. Paul comes, presents the gospel, and they go, nah, and they can't even handle it. They're triggered off. They're emotionally set off because they're so insecure that they recognize that their whole worldview is being challenged. And so rather than having a discussion, all they can do is have a shouting match. Similarly, the Jews. Christ has risen. He's gone to send us to the Gentiles. And they lose their minds. They're emotionally triggered. They're set off. They can't have a discussion. There's no dialogue. There's just reaction. So on the left and on the right, there are unthinking persons who cannot have conversations because they're so devoted to just preserving whatever they already think. We see this in Acts. We see this all over everything. <laughs> I was even thinking about it this week that no matter what Donald Trump does, I can tell you who's going to praise it and who's going to hate it. Before, I don't even know what it is. I'll tell you who's going to love it and who's going to hate it. Tell you which channel, which person, which anchor, which channel, which person, which anchor. That people are less concerned with being objective about what's happening and more interested in fighting for their team. This partisanship. Left team, right team, blue team, red team, Jew team, Greek team. None of them are Jesus team. (laughs) And I hope that we can recognize our proclivity to react defensively to information or challenges that would cause us to maybe rethink some of the way we interpret the world. 
But what these crowds do here, instead of having a conversation, just getting emotionally flustered and spinning out of control, we individually and personally have that tendency too. We don't like being proved wrong. I really don't like losing at anything, much less being proved wrong about something. So that's why they lose it. Because they so are committed to their status quo, their box, that they can't even listen, they can't even hear. Hard hearts. Encouraging message, encouraging morning, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Be faithful as you can, and it may not make a difference. See you next week. <laughs> Well, here's kind of two things I want us to look at here as I'm kind of reflecting on this and thinking through it. The first one is this, is that I'm impressed with Paul because he wasn't surprised by this. He, he knew it was coming. Acts 21, 20, 13, he says, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Paul saw this coming. He was told, you're going to go. It's going to go poorly. And he goes anyway, and he goes with humility, and he goes led by the Spirit, and he goes full of grace and truth. And I spent a significant amount of time, probably two weeks ago when I started really sermon prepping this, thinking like, just being in awe and being jealous of Paul's devotion to anything, right? I think about how like we make commitments, like Paul commits to go to Jerusalem and he goes and he's faithful and he just follows through. He's got the grit, he's got the discipline, whatever it is. And I think about my own life, I'm going, no sweets for 30 days and then like two days later, I'm like cupcakes, you know? doesn't last very long. Or I'm in the gym and I'm thinking, I'm going to do 20 reps. And I do like nine. I'm like, that's good enough. That hurts. <laughs> or I think, I'm done with that sin. I'm not doing it anymore. And it's four days later and I'm cheating at board games. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm, I really was praying for a couple of days, like, how did Paul get so strong? How did he get so devoted? How can I become like Paul? How can I be strong for Jesus like Paul was strong for Jesus? How can I develop that real sense of stick to that Paul has? And it was just last week, taking communion, I really felt the Spirit convict me of that line of questioning and tell me I was asking the wrong questions. That the whole point of the gospel is not that I can be strong for Jesus, but rather that Jesus can be strong for me. The whole point is not, I'm going to serve God and do great things big, in big, fast ways for Jesus, but rather that God serves me and does big and great things for himself through me. And that really, my, my tendency and my desire to want to be strong for Jesus was actually a way of avoiding my need for dependence on him. That if I can view myself as strong and disciplined, then I don't need to be filled with the Spirit and controlled by the Spirit and led by the Spirit. This summer I read this book by a woman named Jen Wilkin. It's actually the book that our women's uh, groups are studying this fall. Today's the last day to sign up for their women's fall studies. Um, but this book is really, really good. And I read it this summer. It's uh, all about how who God is and how us trying to be like God is ultimately sin. And she says this, talking about power and strength. Here's what she writes. Physical strength, beauty, wealth, and charisma. These are just a few of the most obvious sources of power we chase. 
We suspect that those who possess them are the recipients of divine favor, and that those who lack them are the objects of divine displeasure. It should be significant to us that during his earthly ministry, Jesus impressed or overpowered no one with his physical strength. Not one description of what he looked like is found in scripture. Other than that, we had no, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He did not possess personal wealth, nor did he use money to gain privilege. And though his ministry and message convinced many, he chose silence rather than persuasive speech when facing his accusers. Jesus was rejected by the Jews in large part because he did not use power as they had expected or as they had hoped. Rather, knowing that all power belonged to his Father, he walked humbly among us, demonstrating divine power only as it served the greater purpose of his ministry. Leaving for us an example of how that power is nowhere more clearly understood than through the filter of human weakness, Jesus demonstrated perfect trust in the strength of his Father. That looking up to Paul trying to ask, how can I be strong like Paul, is the wrong question. Even if you ask Paul, how'd you get so strong? Here's what Paul's gonna tell you. He says this three times. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. If I must boast, I'll boast in the things that show my weakness. Not hide them. Not compensate for them. Boast in them. Because those remind me that I'm human and not God. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives in the power of God. For also we are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So if you ask Paul, Paul, how'd you get so strong? He'd say, you're blind. I'm weak. And that Paul's appearance of strength was actually rooted in his real awareness of his weakness. Weakness is not the result of our sinfulness, but it's the result of our humanity. Let me say that again. Weakness is not the result of our sinfulness, it's the result of our humanity. That before sin and brokenness were in the world, we were always meant to be a people dependent on God. Independence of God is the result of the original sin. And here I was reading the story of Paul saying, how can I be strong enough to be independent of being dependent on God? I hope that when you see your weakness, that when you see your inability to follow through, that when you're confronted with your humanity, that that doesn't lead you into shame, but that leads you into a deeper sense of dependence on God who is with us. Lastly, I'm kind of saying, how did Paul handle this so well? Well, one, because he knew that he was dependent on God. The other one, I think, is he had his expectations in the right place. Paul's expectations weren't overblown and out of shape. Here's what he says in Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Paul's looking at his pain, looking at the brokenness of our world, and he's looking forward to this future glory that's going to be revealed. That's the second return of Christ. The return of Christ, second coming of Christ. <laughs> That's the coming, the coming of Christ when God makes all things new. Paul's saying, right now, suffering, but then this thing that's gonna make me not even look back on this. It's not even worth comparing with how difficult it was because of how good it's going to be. I've been doing a little premarital counseling lately and one of the main things I tell people is to lower their expectations. <laughs> Because people come into marriage with all these high expectations and the whole first year is just 
a lot of disappointment. <laughs> but if your expectations are really low, then you can't be disappointed, right? And it just kind of goes pretty good. It's kind of like being a Cardinals fan, you know? <laughs> like, uh, you're free to wish they were better, but you're not free to be surprised that they're not good. That's it's kind of that. I think what Paul's saying here is we should expect a real level of suffering. We should expect difficulty. We should expect fruitless ministry, even if it results from faithful service. That the lower our expectations, the higher our capacity to be thankful because we won't be entitled. But also the lower expectations, the lower our capacity to be severely disappointed. I think that this is one of the main reasons why intergenerational relationships are so important. Is that when you're in your 20s and 30s, you're kind of, everything is going well, there's no problems. But then the older people get, the more perspective they tend to gain. They start to realize, like, it gets better kind of, (laughs) but really it's just hard and it stays hard and there's moments of beauty and goodness and things we can rejoice and be thankful for, but by and large, people let you down, employers mistreat you, employees mistreat one another, kids walk away from the faith, parents don't treat their kids well, there's brokenness everywhere. That we should expect that because the Bible is true and the Bible is full of people who have experienced that and are going on experiencing that. That when we experience real pain and real brokenness, we are free to lament it, to hate it, to fight against it, to say it's not how it's supposed to be. We're free to um, do everything we can in our capacity to push back on brokenness. But one thing we're not free to be is to be surprised by it. Christian hope, a real view of Christian hope is not that the sun will come up tomorrow and that next week will be better than this week. It's not that next month will be better than this month. It's not that two years from now will be better than right now. It's that at one point in the future, the Lord Jesus himself will return and make all things new. And if you put your hope and your faith that next month's gonna be better than this month, you're setting yourself up for lots of disappointment. Because it might get better, it might not, but what you don't have is any promise of God that says next month is better than this month. You don't have any promise from God that your coworkers will start treating you better next week. You don't have any promise for God that the government's gonna do exactly what it's supposed to do to help meet your needs. The promise that we have and the true hope that we have is that even in the midst of this brokenness, God will be with us. He will be in the midst of the brokenness with us. He will experience and empathize with us all that we're feeling, but the ultimate removal of all that will only happen when Christ returns and wipes away all sin and brokenness from the whole face of the earth. And so we need to have our expectations rightly set that life is rough. The Spirit of God encourages us in the midst of that. And our hope needs to be, it must be, only in the return of Christ, in the foretaste of His Spirit, here and now, because putting your faith in next week is going to lead you to absolute disappointment your whole life. Our world is really broken. The Bible teaches us that our world is really broken. This is why we're able to see this in Paul. That losing is winning when winning would cost our faithfulness. That getting your way, getting a win, cheating on your taxes to get more money, cutting corners to get to where you want to go. Paul could have softened his message and said, never mind, the Gentiles are out. And they would have loved him for it. They would have put him at a seat at the table. They would have said, speak into this. 
who said, thanks for changing with the times because we really need to keep those Gentiles out. But Paul was committed to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and not some perversion of it. And because of that, nobody listened. Any fruit that would have come from him altering the gospel to appease these Jews would have been false fruit. That would have been winning that looked like losing. But what we see here for Paul is that some losing, some winning looks like losing. Are you prepared to be faithful and to have the outcomes look like a loss horizontally, even though vertically you know that you're pleasing God? Is that something that you've mentally prepared for? I'm gonna be faithful even if the outcome is less favorable. I'm gonna be faithful regardless of whether it goes well or goes poorly. I'm gonna take the loss even if it means that in God's eyes I'm getting a win. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we follow the suffering servant who served at a great cost to himself. I pray that you will remind us that that is the God we follow, the one who counted the cost and was faithful and it ended up getting him crucified. Let us be a people who are willing to love people with that cost. That the work you did in Paul that enabled him to serve and love his enemies, I pray that you'll do that work in us that your spirit would lead us and guide us and shape us. Help us rightly tune our expectations and place our ultimate hope in your second coming. Amen.